National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. We tackle a wide variety of topics on this show, and we're always interested in hearing what interests you. Please contact KYMN Radio if there are topics you'd like us to cover. So for today, conflicts around the world are an ongoing challenge for humanity. Those conflicts result in the loss of life, disruptions to economies, and all manner of third and fourth order negative effects. When we think of conflicts, we usually think of men, it's usually men, carrying weapons, those who participate directly in the fighting. And if we're honest with ourselves, we only think of the role men play in these conflict zones. However, when we only think about the men, we ignore the complex, vital role women play in such conflicts. Our guest today will help us to better understand the role of women in conflict zones. Summer Forrester holds a Master of Arts in Political Science from Appalachian State University and a Doctorate in Political Science with specializations in International Relations, Public Policy, and Women's Studies from Purdue University. After completing her Ph.D. in 2017, she served as a postdoctoral research fellow on a Gates Foundation-funded project to research the relationship between feminist movements and economic empowerment around the world. Dr. Forrester has been conducting fieldwork in Jordan since 2011, including as a Fulbright Scholar in 2015 through 2016. She's also conducted fieldwork in Morocco, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda. Dr. Forrester's work focuses on international security, militarism, Middle East politics, and gender justice. She's published articles in Security Dialogue, Politics and Gender, Environmental Politics, and Feminist Review. In addition to these peer-reviewed publications, she's co-authored policy papers for the United Nations as well as the Gates Foundation. Dr. Summer Forrester is currently an assistant professor of political science and Middle East studies at Carleton College. Professor Forrester, welcome to National Security This Week. Thanks, John. Anytime I'm feeling down, I'm going to call you up and have you just read that one more time with feeling. (laughs) Happy to do that. Happy to do that. It's great to have you on on the show today. Uh, Let's jump right into our topic. There's lots to discuss. Uh, The the role of women in conflict zones. Why don't we start uh, with the field research that you did in Jordan? You know, what have you been studying since 2011? Well, since 2011, I have really been a student of Arabic, was what I went there for the first That was my first order of business when I went back in 2011. Um, But I fell in love with the country, and I came back and decided I'm going to do whatever it takes to get back to Jordan. Okay. And um, then I went back, and I was researching, really trying to understand this relationship between security threats and how that affects the adoption of women's rights in Jordan in particular and in the region more broadly. Okay. So, Jordan, I I mean, what I know uh, because of my career as a naval intelligence officer uh, the Jordanians and, and King Abdullah II specifically, I mean, they, they are tremendously good friends to the United States. Most mm-hmm. people have no understanding of that. And my guess is, is because you've been there in person on a number of occasions, you know that there's a that close relationship. There is that close relationship. And it's it's been funny. It's been that close since for a while now with Obama going so far as to say, I wish we could clone you, King yeah. Abdullah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a super tight relationship. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about maybe the uh, uh, the Jordanian government, all the things they've done to try and help the people in the region? I know they've taken a lot of uh, refugees in from the Syria situation. They already had 
a lot of Palestinians living there. I mean, what, what did you see when you were on the ground? So, yeah, Jordan has been key in that process. They have Palestinians, Iraqis, Syrians, um, a lot of Sudanese even. Um, so they have really been a key part of, of bringing in refugees and um, and also thinking, I mean, more broadly, they're known as kind of the linchpin, as the as the good the good actor in a bad neighborhood, um, and and whether you know we could we could break that apart a little bit, but yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but but really they have, yeah, they've been a pretty important stabilizing force, I think. Okay, well maybe we'll we'll talk a little bit more <laughs> about that as we go through our discussion today. So your experiences in Jordan, how, how did they inform your understanding of the role women play in conflict zones? Yeah. Um, so when I first back went back, you know, in 2011, um, and I was just talking to all sorts of folks, uh, and I lived in Irbid at the time, which is very far north near the southern border of Syria, and that was the summer of 2011. So things are just starting to heat up in Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, the Arab Spring was you know, kind of doing its thing still at that time. And I started talking to different folks and hearing the ways in which women were not the way that we envisioned them on TV, these passive actors who are not doing anything but like clutching their pearls at home, but really being super involved and doing a lot of of, of on-the-ground action, but also a lot of um, negotiating and, and um, like WhatsApping folks to say, this thing is happening here, you should be here, or this thing is happening over there, you should be over there. Um, so really across the board, they were critical actors in all sorts of different ways, and certainly not, as I said, in the way that we see them as being passive actors, not doing anything but sitting at home with the kids. So politically active, uh, strong on the organizing side for political movements? That oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. All right. Yeah. So that's sort of changed your understanding of... Well, to be honest, I, I guess, you know, change might be a bit strong since it was more like just raise my understanding about okay. it. Um, and getting into political science, I was interested. Um, my background is not in political science at all. And then I ended up working for NAS Pensacola, Naval Air Station Pensacola, right at the time of um, right as we were getting into Iraq and, and Afghanistan and, and ha- hearing these conversations that would happen you know, at a Navy base compared to the academic conversations. And I was somewhere in the middle, like, what in the world is happening? Yeah. Uh, and trying to parse out and really understand how can I make sense of the world around me is... is yeah. yeah. I think that is a challenge. I mean, it's one thing to be a career intelligence officer, reading classified documents every day, getting a sense of what's happening out there. Uh, the average person really only has access to what they see on TV or read in the newspaper or, or read on the Internet. Uh, you have a the benefit of having been directly on the ground uh, in in Jordan and other places that we'll talk about soon uh, to see what things are really like there and to study these issues up close and personal from an academic perspective, which is very different than the way you know we would look at it as sure. as an intelligence community or, or even as the military. Uh, so you also studied in, in Morocco, Kenya, Tanzania, and, and Uganda. Uh, what were you studying in those places? <laughs> So um, I've been. I went to Morocco one other time before this most recent project, and that was again thinking about this relationship between militarism and women's rights. Uh, and I did a little bit of that also in Uganda. But most recently, these this cluster of countries was um, back before the world fell apart in 2019. And I was um, interviewing all sorts of different folks about economic empowerment, about this Gates project. Uh, okay. So really trying to understand. Um, 
how have women's movements played a role in um, shaping access to land rights or um, or helping women have be able to to use their rights that they have in constitutions or different policies, uh, labor policies, as well as access to capital. So can they open a bank account? Um, can they do they have an ATM card? What are the different ways that they can access capital? Okay. So, so it's principally economic focused or So this one was well it was that that intersection of how we see feminist activism affecting uh economic empowerment. So what are the ways in which um women's movements can help can help women and raise the status of women economically because mm-hmm. we know they matter for all sorts of things like violence against women, sure. reproductive rights, um uh, labor policies we knew some more about, but now we're really trying to parse, parse out that relationship and say, how do feminist movements matter yeah. with this particular thing? And it's my understanding that in a, in a lot of countries around the world, uh, women uh, generally run the household. Uh, so they are really in charge of what's happening in the family in many ways. And if they are going to get active in in the economy itself and taking action on those, those, those fronts, they're going to have a an outsized impact uh, when their voices are finally heard. Is that a good way to frame it or um, not I really? think no, no, I think that's a good way to frame it. Um, I think, you know, that, that weird relationship between the private life and the public life and figuring yeah. out how do we, um, how do we create policies that, that allow for the private life to, to not just be seen as women are just running the household, right? But understanding the economic importance of the labor that goes into care work or the mm-hmm. labor that goes uh, to taking care of kids or older people or making sure that the, you know, food and distribution of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we understand women's roles in the economy in this broader way rather than say, okay, now you're in the labor force and it's over, or yeah. you now, you know, work at home and that's where you belong or, or how you matter. Right. Um, so but, I, know, yeah. I know it here that, uh, you know, in the countries that you've studied, wh- where you've been on the ground and done this work on the ground, uh, you have a mix of uh, uh, Christian and Islamic uh, faiths, uh, different tribal areas, certainly in, in Kenya. Uh and other places, do you see any kind of difference there as far as the role women play, the impact they have, depending upon some of those cultural factors? Sure, um, that's a that's a big question, John. Uh, uh, and uh, <laughs> we're here to talk about big topics. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, it's um, one of the things that we find empirically is it's not so much about what the religion is, but how the religion is um, codified into law. So in what ways do we see religious doctrine affecting policies? Okay. Uh, And the more religious doctrine affects policies, the worse, unfortunately, it is for women in general. Okay. Um, But, of course, there are some important differences that happen once we start going from here are policies on the paper or policies on the book or whatever to how they're implemented. Uh, And that that can vary by... Even you know subnationally, and looking yeah. around Jordan, for example, are you living in a, a rural area, an yeah. urban area? Um, what is your community like, and how is it supporting you? Uh, and I had some really cool conversations about the ways that communities kind of um, go above and beyond policies. So if we have some policy on the book, for example, about um, let's we'll, we'll take marriage, for example, okay. and if um, so, there up until twenty. 
2018, I guess it was, 2018, 2017, there was this law on the book in Jordan that if you are raped, um, the rapist can marry his victim and it will he'll have a truncated sentence, um, which, you know, bad news all around. And the feminist movement was really important for getting that law off of the books. Okay. But what was interesting is, is seeing how community members were also, like, not super keen on this law um, in many places. And so they would be like, no, we're not doing this. This is not a thing that we are going to allow happening to yeah. happen in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ways in which they created this this buffer around a bad policy and said, this is, you know, we're not okay with this. And whether it's the tribal leaders, the father, the grandfather, the brothers, but um, how we see this mobilization happening in, in communities, I think is okay. pretty cool and important. All right. Uh, so for our audience, uh, you're, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Summer Forrester, and we're discussing the role women play in conflict zones. Uh, so, Summer, uh, back in late January, uh, we had former U.S. Army Intelligence Officer Bethany May uh, on the show. Uh, she actually spent time deployed up in, in Manbij in, in northern Syria, uh, during the fight against the Islamic State. Uh, she was deployed there with uh, U.S. Army Special Forces. Uh, she worked closely with Syrian Arab women and also with Kurdish women, uh, sort of understanding the role they played, and we had some great conversations about that, that on our show. Uh, what can you say about your research and the role women played and continue to play in the fight against the Islamic State in, in the Middle East? Yeah, that's, I mean... They it's a big have, question, that I is, That's a great question, but uh, what's interesting about it is we've seen a lot of um, attention being paid to these uh, women in the YPJ, which I'm yep. assuming is the the crowd that um, Beth was working, mm-hmm. Bethany, sorry. Bethany, yeah. um, and... And what's neat, and and I was listening to that show and thinking about how can I add to this conversation because you've already had such a really rich one, but what I think is interesting um, is really thinking about the importance of women organizing as women, and that's where my research is all about. And what's cool about this Kurdish group uh, is they're... um, there's built into some of their framework of like the pursuit of the Kurdish national state is this idea of, uh, of women's science. It's called genealogy. Uh, and this genealogy is all about a radical gender justice as, at the basis of their pursuit of the nation state. And that's been part of the ways in which that they have fought back against Daesh or ISIS or, or whatever we're calling them. Sure. Um, and, and they've been working in this radical gender justice as as the basis for why they can fight back, and then also de-radicalizing women who have been part of of ISIS. And uh, so it's a multi-pronged approach, really. I think of how to root out and 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 really affect change in the region. So how, I mean, how is that? Uh, uh, that's a great lead into actually to the next question I wanted to ask you, which was uh, maybe taking a little bit of a reverse look at the Islamic State and. In the Middle East, in general, can you talk a bit about the role women play in support of mm. groups like uh, Daesh or Isla- the Islamic State, and maybe enlighten our listeners a, a bit on the critical impact uh, of women who s- who actually support those fighters? Yeah, yeah, that's also a, a super interesting relationship of thinking about. You know what we know about ISIS is it's pretty oppressive to women, right? right. So why are women going in and being part of this and? And what's interesting and important is that, that women can be radicalized in the same way and in these same pathways that we see men being radicalized. So mm-hmm. how then, like, what are some of the things that they fall into? And I made some notes about this. So um, some of the things that they're promised to as they join in this group are, are things like empowerment, 
um, deliverance. So we're being delivered from being subjugated in the West uh, in whatever ways that might manifest. Mm-hmm. Um, they get to have participation in the state building, this new utopia. So it's not framed as we're, you know, this oppressive, brutal regime. We're a utopia. We're this uh, Islamic utopia. And again, you know, so-called Islamic utopia, yeah. I think, is important to right, signal, right? right? Exactly. Uh, and then also tapping into this idea of you can be exceptionally pious, that you can have this pious identity. And so we have women coming in with these promises, and and we know that gender gets manipulated in all sorts of different ways, you know, whether it's here, whether it's in the Middle East, to serve different purposes. And this is certainly what happened with the Islamic State. And so, you know, we're bringing women in, and they're going to be promised all of these things, and all they have to do is, is be a part of, you know, taking care of the fighters and feeding them and teaching them and having birth right. or giving birth. Right. Um, because, again, the so-called Islamic State is about building a state, and you can't just build a state if you're not, you know, having children to exactly. fulfill the state, right? Yep. And, and so thinking about this relationship of, of how women beca- became part of state building, I think, is is part of that. Yeah. Uh, what I found fascinating uh, when I took a look at uh, what the Islamic State had done in in pretty rapid fashion, frankly, once they came on the scene in both Syria and Iraq, uh, they displaced whatever government services were in those areas with their own form of governance, which included all of the things like picking up garbage mm, yeah. <laughs> and, and managing all the other functions that happen in a normal society. So, you know, if you have an army of fighters, maybe they are not all the ones who, who can handle those functions. Uh, so bringing others into the, you know, into the society uh, to actually build a society under these new rules that they've instituted, you, you have to have women who are involved in that and committed to that cause. Right. Absolutely. So you mentioned uh, that some of the roles that women are playing are to try and sort of pull those women back from their ideological commitment uh, to a group like the Islamic State. Uh, is that successful? I mean, I know there are a lot of camps out there where women and children of now deceased or captured Islamic State fighters uh, still are pretty radicalized. Mm. Uh, they're pretty committed to the cause. So, how, I mean, in your research, because uh, I know you teach about Middle East uh, issues, uh, are you finding that there's been some success in sort of de-radicalizing these women, or are they... Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of my students, Nina, she's a, a super amazing. Um, she, in her comps project, and I learned alongside of her about the ways in which we see um, this commitment to radical gender justice being taught through, and how do we rethink our position in societies. And uh, and this, these Kurdish groups in particular have been really powerful, mm-hmm. Um in helping women relearn their place, uh, relearn their place sounds kind of weird, but you know what I mean, like yeah. re- relearning um, what they can offer a society and uh-huh. how um, how they can be uh, brought back in. And instead of saying, like, you are now forever ostracized or yeah. which feeds into the ISIS propaganda, right? Does, uh, this whole idea of they don't want you in the West. Yeah. You don't belong there. You only have a place here. And so relearning of, of what your place, using the air quotes around your place, can look like and really rethinking and helping women reimagine what that looks like, how they they can uh, be a part of society is pretty Mm -hmm. important. And it's been, um, I mean, I think success is an empirical question, so I'd want to give you the data on that. But uh, from what I have seen so far, it has been um, successful. It'll take time, certainly. 
yeah. And I do find it interesting that, you know, over in the cultures that, that we're talking about in the Middle East, you tend to have sort of those, the blood feud, right? I mean, it goes on for a long time. And uh, if you have people who are setting aside those issues and actually trying to engage with people who had been their oppressors or enabled their oppressors uh, to try and reimagine what a new society can look like and how people can fit in. That's that's kind of revolutionary thinking. I mean, that's yeah. very modern thinking. Right, which is why I really <laughs> wanted us to, to think about this um, because it's progressive not just by standards of like this progressive thing happening in this yeah. faraway backwards place, which I take issue with that framing in the first place, right? Sure. But yeah. um, but it's progressive by any standards. And the ways that of really a pursuit of gender justice that says gender justice is not just good for women, but it's good for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and that's really what they're trying to get at and help all sorts of folks around yeah. the area understand. Uh, so, so let's move on to a couple other questions. You know, during your time in Jordan and, and, and maybe in Morocco as well, uh, what have what have been your key takeaways? Key takeaways uh, about the positive or even the negative impacts of of U.S. actions in the Middle East, and, and if if you can perhaps focus on impacts to women and children specifically. Uh, I I suspect that most people who are who are listening uh, don't really deeply consider the ramifications of American policy on the average family in a conflict zone mm. on the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah. Um. So we'll we'll take that question apart bit by bit. First of all, I want to take the women and children because I feel like we often smush those together yeah. so much so that women and children becomes like one word. So let's take the and children off and just think about women for a second because okay. I think women are empirically different than boys and girls and boys or girls are different from nope. each other, right? No question about it. <laughs> so thinking about, okay, so if we think about what does this affect on on women, um, like any good political scientist, I'll say it depends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And I think... You know, there was a a lot of talk back in oh one, oh two, oh three about the liberation of women. Mm-hmm. Um and that has not happened, right. alas. Um yeah. and I think, you know, it's obvious in some of the places like Iraq or Afghanistan of saying what are US actions and, and that's such a broad term too. Um but as I was thinking about this question I, I thought it might be helpful for us to think even about something specific. So thinking about arms sales and arms sales to a place like Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've seen since 2011 is really the spread of Wahhabism, right? Mm -hmm. So like a really pretty radical fundamental interpretation of Islam. And that's really coming out of Saudi Arabia. And um, And, and specifically Sunni Islam. And and like taking hold in the southern part of Jordan because Saudi has so much money that they're able to fund schools and mosques and madrasas and and things that then become community centers. And if you are in a place that's been poor, that that is poor and overlooked by the government, um, and now you have a place that's giving you refuge and helping you and being a charity organization, it can it can foster some goodwill. Mm -hmm. And so thinking then about, okay, how is the U.S. involved with this? 2019 to 2020, um, we sold $5 billion worth of weapons to Saudi Arabia. So thinking about U.S. actions are not just we went in and, you know, went into Iraq, but also like it's a a much more sprawling landscape. Um, And those, I think, are problematic because we know that these radical interpretations of religion across the board are really bad for women. So what does that mean? It pushes them out of um, positions of power in the community, positions of power in politics, positions of power in um, 
in society writ large and it really tries to contain them back to the house. Like, this is where you belong. You belong with the women. Now let's bring that and children back mm-hmm. in together. Okay. Um, right, so smushing it in. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I think that if we think about not just the ways that conflict and war eradicate infrastructure and can blow up houses and, and schools and hospitals, but really thinking about in the aftermath, who's picking up the pieces and how are we allowing for certain pieces to be picked up by um, regimes that are not particularly helpful in the pursuit of justice or democracy even. So who's reestablishing society, basically? Exactly. That can have a huge impact. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, uh, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Summer Forrester, and we're discussing the role women play in conflict zones. Uh, So let's move uh, on to another topic. I want to go back to the the Gates Foundation. Uh, Can you tell us about your work with the Gates Foundation? What have you been studying, and and how might your study results help to craft policy change? Well, let's knock on wood for hoping (laughs) they can craft policy change. Um, This project I am working on with some collaborators, some still at Purdue, some uh, at Simon Fraser. Um, but the the biggest part of our project has been updating this database of feminist movements from 1975 to 2015 uh, and saying how have they changed over time, how have they grown over time in 126 countries around the world. So wow. we built this massive data set. Uh, and then we wanted to go and do some interviews and say, here are the trends that we've seen through the data. Now what does it look like on the ground? And really trying to understand uh, this this project came about because of human rights funders like the Gates Foundation saying, if we want to make an impact, where should we put our money? And so we're hoping that, you know, even if it's not public policy that we're shifting, if we're shifting the way that philanthropists think about where to put their money where the mouth is, basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's what we're hoping to to try and establish. So if we're interested in increasing the economic presence of women or the economic power of women, where should we put that money? So so can you give us kind of a, a sense of some of the specific things that you're looking at as you probably do that research? Um, sure. So in the data set, we have looked at, for example, um, is there is the, the feminist movement in a given place? Are they able to capture the attention of politicians? Are they able to, do they have widespread support? Um, are they, you know, when, when we think of, of social movements in general, we t- typically think only of maybe protests, for example, but it's much more expansive than that. So, of course, protests, but also um, opinion pieces. Are they publishing? Are they teaching in, in different institutions? How are they contributing to a, a given country's understanding of the status of women? Okay. Um, are they, or are they not active at all? Are they uh, repressed to the extent that they can't be active? Because I think it's important to know that uh, at least in the 126 countries that we have in our data set, um, 99.9% of the countries have some sort of feminist movement, um, whether it's super strong or not very strong is, um, you know, depends on the place that we're looking. Sure. But um, but now there's a feminist movement in, in practically every place in the world. Yeah. Uh, so women organizing as women to elevate the status of women uh, or some subgroup of women. Uh, so I'm gonna, we're gonna, I want to drill down onto one country, and we've already talked a little bit about that country. And I think this qu- next question I want to ask you will sort of help – will guide us into that topic. Uh, w- when security policy is crafted in countries uh, like across the Middle East, uh, do countries – the governments in those countries take into account the role that women play in their respective societies? 
Mm, yeah, I love that question. Um, I think <laughs> it's it's interesting, and, and again, political scientists here, it depends. Yeah. Um, but in general, when we're talking about security policy, that's usually put up in this realm of high politics. Yep. And when security's on the agenda, practically everything else is off. It really like sidelines a lot of other discussions. So the low politics things like women's rights, um, infrastructure, these are the sorts of things that kind of get pushed off of the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my research, I look at the, the flip side of this. So in what ways do we see security threats affecting the ways that governments pay attention to women? Okay. Uh, and that's the, the question that has motivated like my different publications and underscoring this book project that I'm working on is really thinking about what does the security climate mean for the adoption of women's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of depends on which policy we're talking about. And King Abdullah in Jordan has been really pretty savvy for saying, okay, Muslim Brotherhood, for example, I want you to be on board with our foreign policy endeavors that may be a little unsavory to you. But if you get on board with my foreign policy decisions, you can continue talking about things like inheritance. You can be in charge of the gender issues around inheritance. So when King Abdullah and Queen Rania are talking with the broader international community, they are on board for women's rights. They're here for it. Mm -hmm. And then when we get back home, we see this flip of like a pretty banal and conservative approach to women's rights or really where it becomes the bartering chip. Yeah. Which is not exactly what's happening in, like, Saudi Arabia, for instance. There's yeah. been a lot of movement very quickly yeah, uh, in there's Saudi been, Arabia. But. There's been a lot of movement very quickly, <laughs> but they've also moved a lot of those yeah. activists right on into prisons. So, right, <laughs> like, right. Um, that this is where we get into that breakdown of, okay, we've got a policy on the books, but now in what way is it able, are we seeing it implemented? Is yeah. it Can women actually use their rights? Uh, and that's... So is it sort of the first wave of, of women and some of these feminist movements are seen as a threat to security in the society and they're jailed, but change is made so the women who follow after them have more rights? Is that kind That's of what we're seeing? That's, you know, hopefully, inshallah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and you still hear that a lot of women being framed as you're threatening the fabric of our society, you're mm-hmm. threatening our the, the, um, the very foundation, our social fabric, these sorts of things. and But policies are important because you can't have if you don't have any policy then you have you don't have a leg to stand right right? you can't say you're not doing something that you promised up because you haven't promised us anything so getting those policies on the books is really important uh yeah so i mean have you looked a little bit more in depth at the i mean change like we just said happened very quickly in saudi arabia uh for the role what women are allowed to do in saudi arabia now is much different than it was just a few years ago uh are you seeing any impacts of that on society as a whole in saudi arabia in your well, studies or? i haven't done too much by way of, of research in saudi so i don't want to like step outside of any my, my zone here things um, that you've heard from other other researchers and if not that's okay not off the top of my head. I'll report back if I think oh, okay. of one later. All right. <laughs> so we just have a, a, a few minutes left. Uh, what else do you think our listeners should know about the critical role that women play in, in conflict zones around the world? H- have we missed anything in our discussion today? Well, I mean, whole books and tomes and volumes are written, so probably. Um, but I think the thing that I'd want to leave folks with is recognizing that, like I, I said very you know, way back in the beginning is that women are not just passive actors, that they have agency mm-hmm. and they've really been in, important as fighters. They've been important uh, resources for mobilizing folks. Um, they are, of course, victims also. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, 
I think if we fail to pay attention to women, we really miss a big part of of what happens in conflict zones and yeah. what happens even, you know, in thinking about who's deployed where and, and who's reacting. And yeah. yeah. Well, if it's any indication, um, one of the unique things in the in the U- U.S. military special operations community is that they started to bring women in to create teams specifically to engage with uh, women in countries where special operations forces are deployed. Because a lot of the societies that are there, men can't really just go talk to the women. I mean, it's just not allowed. Uh, but if you have another woman, you know, able to in- engage and discuss things with the women in those in those societies, you can actually make some breakthroughs in building trust, uh, finding out intelligence about where insurgent fighters are, those kinds of things. Uh, so I think there's they're starting to become a bit more of a recognition, certainly in the U.S. intelligence community and certainly in the U.S. special operations community about the important role that women play in, in these conflict zones. Yeah, uh, So I this agree. this study that you're, you've been working on, this is fantastic work. I mean, and it's not just for the security issues, too. It's for all the other things that are going on uh, in societies that build an entire society, economies, uh, political representation, et cetera. Uh, so, Dr. Forrester, any continuing research projects that you're working on for, for this summer now that uh, the school oh, yeah. year is over? Um, I have a few things. So related to what we're talking about, I'm working on this quantitative analysis of how feminist movements, um, how conflict affects feminist movements, because it's been interesting. A lot of recent work has shown that conflict can create surprising openings for women. And mm. um, we can think of the Rosie the Riveter effect, for yeah, example. Yeah, and sometimes when civil war is like so expansive that it like eradicates everything. It becomes this important yeah. moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but those gains are often short or medium term. And so I'm trying to figure out if one of the reasons that we don't see long-term gains is because of the way that the feminist movement is impacted. Because like I said, the feminist movement's really important for solidifying gains for women. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I'll be up to All this right. summer. Sounds like you're going to be busy. <sighs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> So we've come to the end of our show today. Uh, Professor Summerforcer, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. Thanks for having me, John. This was super fun. Uh, So that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio. I'll find experts who can join us to address your topic. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone. Stay cool. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.